0: Paul was very clear when he said that we live in the last days, that will be marked by men who are lovers of their own selves and people who are brutal, and that is without any compassion. And we have men and women that are serving in that capacity here and very thankful for those who do so. If you read Romans 13, these authorities are a gift from God. These are instituted by God. And we live in a country, and that's not always been the case for some of us in here, we live in a country where, for the most part, our law enforcement still um, does what they are called to do. They're not, they're not the ones you should be fearing in the community, necessarily, like in some other countries. Um, when you're in trouble, you can still call law enforcement. That is not true in many countries in the world. And so, very thankful. What a great reminder of that gift this morning. I'm going to ask you to open your scriptures to Psalm 32. So this is the culture we live in. Okay, we live in, if you would call it, a toxic culture. Sure, sidewalks are clean, and you see pet owners cleaning up usually after their pet, after it makes a deposit. And, you know, we live in a very clean-seeming pure community. But that's not true of relationships, is it? And I was thinking about, What text, what topic to preach on the last Lord's Day of the year? Let me ask you, what would you preach on? Well, you say you wouldn't preach. Um, What would you choose for a sermon topic? For the last Lord's Day of what for many of us has been a very long year, what would you choose? Stewardship? That'd be good, right? Scripture reading? I was leaning towards that. That's where I wanted to go. Because the importance of it, and I I believe that there's a good majority uh, in here this morning that maybe hasn't opened the Bible since last Sunday. So that's a burden on your pastor's hearts. Okay, what else? The goodness of God, that would be great. Missions, evangelism, prayer, all these would be good. But there was something specific that I believe the Holy Spirit kept bringing me back to as we live in this world, and that is forgiveness. What a great way to end 2017 and enter 2018 with at least understanding that as believers we have been forgiven, and as sinning saints, by the way, that's not an oxymoron, that happens often. As sinning saints, there is forgiveness. But even beyond that, not just God's forgiveness, but our forgiveness, willingness to forgive others as God has forgiven us forgiveness assumes an offense right there's something that needs to be forgiven that's true of us with God and that's true of us with others so it's true both vertically and horizontally and forgiveness assumes some kind of righteous standard something objectively has been broken and forgiveness is closely associated with reconciliation a making of one again in that relationship. So we have spent more than 364 days of the year 2017. This is the last day of the year. Tomorrow's a totally new year. And, you know, you hear people say, well, it's just another day. It is, but there is a a sense of resetting, right, and renewing and, and launching off into a new year with great, confident expectation. But if you think about the 364.37 days that we've spent, we've said a lot of things, haven't we? Matter of fact, they average, and it's different for the typical man and the typical woman. We average three to seven thousand words per day, and experts say about 500 of those are of any value. This sermon alone, just to give you an understanding of how many words that is, is, is approximately. 3500 words so i will say more in this monologue called preaching than the average man says an entire day there's no shock faces right now people are like yeah right um we've said a lot of things we our minds have been occupied with a, a lot of thoughts think about the thoughts you've entertained this year If you've meditated on Scripture at all, if you've memorized Scripture at all, you have occupied your thoughts with one of the grandest things in the world. Some of you have had dreams. Some of you have taken the first couple steps to pursue those dreams. Some loving and caring thoughts have entered our mind. And some not-so-loving and caring thoughts down to the outright awful have entered our minds. We've done a lot of things. We've made plans. We've executed them. We've gone places. We've hurt and we've been hurt. We've done some great things and we've done some sinful things too. That's what 2017 is. Right words and thoughts and actions. And in all this, we have crisscrossed the lives of one another. We've rubbed up against one another. We've gotten into people's lives or we've tried to stay out of people's lives. And in doing so... It is possible that we have sinned against one another. Here's what I want us to look at this morning on the last day of 2017. Number one, the blessedness of being forgiven. And number two, the blessedness of forgiving as God forgives. Now, we often think of the first one, the blessing of being forgiven. But we don't quite take much account for the blessing that it is to be in a position to forgive other people. So I've asked you to turn to Psalm 32. The background of Psalm 32 and 51 may be most likely the episode of David's taking Bathsheba and killing her husband Uriah. That was a bad year for David. David had power and position, but he allowed those to get himself to the point where he thought he was untouchable. He had the resources to design a convincing cover-up. It really was a military death sentence. He purposely put him out within range of the archers. He wanted this man out of the picture. Several months passed, possibly an entire year, and David experienced what some of us have experienced in our life and what some of you may be experiencing right now, and we will call that the misery of a sinning saint. It's one of the most unhappy people you'll ever come across. Is a saint living in unconfessed sin. Look at Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. This really is an exclamation. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Here's what what the psalmist is saying. Oh, the happiness, the deep delight, the intense joy of the person who experiences these things. There's three words used uh, to sort of give you a vivid description of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. If you were to just give a quick definition of those, it would be rebellion, failure, and perversion. I don't want to dwell on those. That's the depravity of our flesh. That is what comes out of our own hearts. But I want you to notice the contrasts, the four terms that counter those descriptions of rebellion, failure, and perversion. The first word is forgiven. That's the lifting of a burden or the removal of a barrier. Do you ever feel that between you and God? Do you ever feel that between you and someone else? Sort of this noticeable barrier? The second word is covered. There's two ideas here, hidden and Protected hidden from heaven's view when it involves God, but then also covered and protected from the deserved wrath that should be poured out on you because of the rebellion, the perversion, and the failure. The third word is an interesting one. It Depend, depends on what translation you have. The ESV says um, counts. No, the idea is does not count these things. Or the New American Standard says does not impute these things. Look back at verse 2. Blessed is the man, or we would say is the person against whom the Lord counts no. The best way to explain this is our understanding of a credit card. And you can have a credit limit that is off the charts, and if you put this into the spiritual realm, it's like you keep you keep choosing to sin and you charge that on this card. And because your credit limit is so high, you just keep swiping that card. That thought, that action, that payback, that glance, that gossip. Here you are just swiping that card. But what's going to come next month? Your statement. And on there is going to be every single charge that you've done. Known to man and unknown to man. And you went wild with this card and there goes the statement. You know what that word means? You, you, it's a real charge. These aren't imagined things. You get that statement, it's already been paid in full. Balance, zero. And if you don't fully comprehend that in your relationship with God, in the light of your sin, where the wages of that sin is death then you have never been able to exult like David here when he said, how happy is the man where these things are true. Paid in full, zero balance. It's not just that they disappeared because they were imaginary. No, they were real charges and somebody else paid for them. The fourth term is in whose spirit there is no deceit. This describes the joy, and I want you to hear this. I want our young people to hear this. The joy of being honest with God. The joy of saying, that was sin. I was wrong. I'm the one that hurt. I'm the one being stubborn. I'm the one increasing the damage. How blessed is the person in whose spirit there is no deceit. That transparency, nothing hidden, nothing twisted to appear that it's something that it's not. It is, a, it is just a very clear openness before God. How long has it been since you've had that? Whether you're sitting or standing or driving or on your knees with your head bowed, God, you are. I'm going to say the same thing about my sin that you say. And it's ugly, and it's perverted, and it fails to glorify you. And you just say that. But instead, we try to numb it, or we try to escape, or we try to find other ways of dealing with it, when really, down at its root, it typically is unconfessed sin. Look at the distress of the unrepentant sinner We looked at the blessedness of being forgiven. That's how David starts. Okay, what brought him to that point? It's almost like the psalm is backwards. He starts with the ending. How blessed is the person where these four things are true of him in light of these three terms of my exceeding sinfulness. But then look at what drove him to this. Look at verse 3. For when I kept silent, when I wasn't open... When I held on to deceit in my own spirit, when I said, it's not really that bad, this is going to pass over, give it 48 hours, I'll be out of the headlines, and I'll be able to just move on like I did before. No, that is not the case with sin. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. See, David If the background is, the episode with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, he had broken three commandments, the tenth, the seventh, and the sixth. David did what we often try to do. He tried to put in place a cover-up, a convincing cover-up. He got other people involved in the cover-up. And he tried to give them tasks to perform to cover up his sin. What David learns, though, is that it is impossible To silence your what? Your conscience. This is what a lot of people who do great evil do not take into account before the crime. And the crime is what's going on in here and in here and in the middle of the night when God's hand is heavy Silent is to conceal, suppress, to keep secret or hide. This is the opposite of no deceit in verse 2. He says this, My bones wasted away. Life dried up within him. It's like you're on a toll road, and every 60 miles, sin is collecting its toll fee. But nobody knows about it. Sin is collecting its fee. But I think I got away with it. Next toll booth. Next toll booth. And all of a sudden, life is... Is expending itself through my groaning all day long. Verse three. This is a disturbed state of mind that does not stop moaning. You ever you ever experienced that with sin? I mean, you wouldn't. We don't typically verbalize it, but it's ah oh, ah. Oh. Somebody tells a joke, you laugh, but then you go back when you have time. You know, all by yourself. Ah oh. ah. Oh, yeah. What does Proverbs say? Even in laughter, the heart is sorrowful. It's not that you can't laugh or find enjoyment, but as soon as you're alone, there's that toll booth collecting its fee, collecting its next fee. The inescapable and unrelenting hand of God. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Do you know our greatest problems are never around us? They're in us. It's called indwelling sin. You know what 2017 may be marked by for so many people is us wrongly thinking that my greatest problems are my circumstances or my job situation or my singledness or my not singleness. These are my greatest problems. My greatest problems are other people or my greatest problems are I don't have enough money. Do you know those are not your greatest problems? Your greatest problems are inside of you. Notice sin's effect in verse 4. Okay, so you have all day long, for day and night my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You know God is gracious not to allow us to be happy in our sin. It is God's gift of grace to you to not let you and me be happy in our sin. What is He doing? His hand is heavy upon us day and night, and He is trying to turn us back to what is the greatest joy. Do you know it is God's goodness to not allow you to be deeply satisfied with a new trinket or technology? Because our greatest joys are found in Him, it is His goodness that we are not happy in our sin. It is His goodness that we are not happy in simply the horizontal relationships unconnected to who he is. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David leans on his experiences. David is a shepherd in Judea, knew very well the the stifling heat of summertime in Judea. From May until the middle of October, it turned into a parched wilderness. It actually mirrors Central Africa, which we call the dry season. And in by October, you haven't had rain for several months. There's a, a layer of dust on everything. Even after the sun goes down, you're hot, you're sticky, you toss, you're fitful when you sleep. You try to find some relief by turning on the big box fan, and then the power goes off for seven hours. And you sit there, and you, just, you hear the mosquitoes. For some of us, that's an experience we're not unfamiliar with in our own heart. This parched, dry wilderness. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. By the way, just pause right there. Who are we talking about? David? Are we talking about a believer in God or an unbeliever? We're talking about a believer. That's why we call this the misery of a sinning saint. And I'm not sure at what point David actually broke. God's hand was heavy upon him, day and night. His energy dried up. His life was expended. But the point is, David did break. Perhaps, if this is the background of Bathsheba and Uriah, it happened with an event recorded in Second Samuel. Let me read this to you out of chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, Okay, here's Nathan the prophet, comes out, seemingly out of nowhere, has an audience with the king, and he goes to tell the king a story. We can connect with that story. Here's this little pet, cute little lamb, eats from their table, kind of runs around with the kids. They all show this little lamb great affection. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. It's sad, right? right? Pet Pet Fluffy was just taken. I mean, don't just let this be like scripture far removed. Pet Fluffy was like taken hostage and made dinner. That's the picture. Now, picture David, wherever he's sitting, hearing this story. He took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You're the rich man who took the pet lamb. You're the one. I don't know what was going through David's mind at that point. But he did realize all of a sudden somebody knew about his sin. He didn't get away with it. The cover-up... By the way, the cover-up never works with God. It just never works. It'll buy you a year or two of misery, but it doesn't work. Because God sees all things. He knows all things. He runs to and fro throughout the earth, beholding the evil and the good. He knows everything. He says to him, you are the man... I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite. Oh, see, he does know. You have struck him down with a sword and have taken his, life, his, his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So I don't know at what point David broke, but I think that was a catalyst, at least in that situation. Now I want to read to you verse 5 of Psalm 32. This is what David says. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You see, the pathway to restored fellowship and joy is acknowledgement, transparency, and confession. I acknowledge. That this simply means I I'm, I'm made known to God. Okay, think about that. Did God not already know? Yes, he did. So what does that mean? It means I'm going to agree to, to say the same thing about my sin that God has said in his word. Right? It wasn't just a lapse in judgment. It isn't just a disease. It was actually a rebellious transgression of perversion. I'm going to acknowledge that. I acknowledged. David speaks of not covering his iniquity. He's not trying to hide it from God who sees all things. So he doesn't cover that he coveted his neighbor's wife. He acknowledges that. He doesn't call his committing adultery something with a softer euphemism. He simply acknowledges that. He doesn't hide that he arranged the death of Uriah. He agrees with God that it was murder. That's what what he's doing. He He is not covering these things. By the way, an interesting note, in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, where it's giving this record of the birth line of Jesus Christ, listen to what... Matthew 1.6 says, And David was the father of Solomon by... What do you expect it to say? By Bathsheba. It doesn't say that. It says by the wife of Uriah. That's the divine perspective. Hundreds of years later in a gospel account, Bathsheba is still considered the wife of Uriah. And David acknowledges that David's going to say the same thing about his transgression that God says now I want you to understand two very important things about the background of this and then David's prayer God forgave David just think about that God forgave David forgiven you forgave the iniquity of my sin you forgave the perversion of my rebellion The second thing we need to understand is Bathsheba did not become unpregnant. And Uriah did not become unmurdered. And the point, I think, as we end this year and move into the next year, is that sin does have temporal consequences that cannot be removed. Now, in eternity, sure, because there is no more sorrow nor tears anymore. Let me explain it this way. A young person may choose this afternoon on New Year's Eve to go out and get sky high. Get behind a wheel and either slam into a tree and lose his arm or slam into a pedestrian and send that pedestrian into eternity. If he is truly broken and looks to Christ fully dependent upon his cross work. Can would God forgive that young person? And let, me, let me hear you. Would God forgive that young person? Yes. Does the arm grow back? Does the charge of manslaughter, is it all of a sudden dropped because God forgave him? No. So the point here, and you're going to see this in David's life if you just read through the events that happened afterward. Nathan comes to him and says, these things are going to happen. Yes, God forgave the iniquity of your sin. But Nathan comes and he says, the sword is not going to depart out of your house and someone within your own house is going to cause you much trouble like Absalom did. I mean, he's just going on. These are the true effects of sin. And why, why would we put that, well, why is that? Why is that so important as we end a year and enter a new year? This is a warning shot over the bow of a ship. Yes, God forgives, but, but be careful to not just sort of skip into sin thinking, I can always just go back and ask for forgiveness. It'll all be okay. It'll all be the same. It will not be the same. But because he does forgive, look at verse 6, Psalm 32. Therefore, let everyone who is godly see, this is the path for believers. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. By the way, that phrase disturbs me. It's an implied warning that even a believer may go so long unrepentant that it's too late. He's trying to read the text for for what it says. Then he says, Surely in a rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Nathan comforted David by saying this, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. That would have been an encouragement because he should have died. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. I mean, even in the New Testament, you have people that did not examine their own lives before taking the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, because of this, some of you have already fallen asleep. And that's a euphemism for what? For death. So so call on him. While he is near, call on him while he may be found. David speaks of a rush of great waters. He's talking about catastrophe and death. He's not just talking about rainfall. He's talking about a flood. I mean, we saw a very clear example of this in 2011, which was the fourth largest recorded um, megathrust earthquake off the east coast of Japan. It is amazing. It actually caused tsunami waves of heights up to 133 feet. Killed 15,894 people. Damaged 125,000 buildings. David says, in the rush of great waters. But David also said in verse 6, they shall not reach him. Those waters ultimately will not reach him. Why? And I hope this is true for everyone in here this morning. Why? Look at verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, of rescue, of salvation. David found God to be a retreat. And even though David, David's life would not be the same post that sinful incident, David exchanged groaning and mental anguish for singing and spiritual rejoicing. Now look at the next section. Look at Psalm 32, verse 8. The pronoun changes indicating God is speaking. So here is David. And at the end, by the way, he's going to invite you to the same joy. But look at verse, verse 8. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. See, God will be your counselor. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Okay, any parent knows what that means. You're talking and your little one starts to run out to the yard and there's the road. And even though you're talking and you're hearing, where's your attention? Where's your affection? It's on the child. Okay, you're watching. God does that. He guides you with his eye. He, he is right there, close. Then he says this, Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. See, that's how David was acting, like an ignorant beast. He exchanged the close, intimate counsel of God for a bit and a bridle, and Nathan appears. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Look at David's invitation in verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Like the song we sang this morning, David's sin was great, God's mercy is greater. In 2017, my sin was great, but God's grace is greater. In 2017, your sin was great, but God's mercy is greater. When this has been our experience, forgiven by God then what is the fruit of that? And I want to quickly look at one more passage. Turn with me to Matthew 18. Paul exhorts us in his letter to the church at Ephesus, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In Matthew 18, Peter comes to Jesus and he asks him a question. How often should I forgive? And it's interesting, my brother. He's not talking about unbelievers in the community. He's actually talking about a brother offending a brother or a sister offending a sister. Look at Matthew chapter 18. Look at verse 21. Then Peter came up to him, came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. By the way, Peter thought he was being generous because the rabbinic maxim, what what the rabbis taught is three times. Like I can work with three, right? Right. When they come back that fourth time, you're like, mm mm. Mm mm. That's four. Right? So Peter thought he was being. Just seven times? I mean, that's like a biblical number, completeness, perfection. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but. Now, there's going to be a difference in translation here. Some of you have 70 times seven, which is 490. Or some of you have 77 times, and probably with the Greek structure, it's 77 times not like either of those. It's not like you can't forgive the 78th time or the 491st time. That's not the point. The point is a number so high that you've stopped keeping count. That's the point here. And then he gives, I love how Jesus teaches. So then Jesus gives this story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Look at verse 24, and I want you to track with this. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to believing men. He's talking to men who are asking, how often should I forgive someone? Not just someone, my brother. Well, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That is such a huge number, it would have been almost beyond comprehension to this ancient audience. Today it would be comparable to millions even up to a trillion. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. It was a a normal practice in those days that you can't pay me, I'm going to get something out of you. So he sells the whole family. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Is that even possible? Is that even possible for that one who owes so much to pay everything? And the answer is clearly no. And the king would have known that. But look at verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The king sets no conditions. It was an act of pure grace. Look at verse 28. The man who was just forgiven a debt he could not possibly pay in his lifetime. Verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarii is a Roman silver coin. It was the wage for ordinary labor for a day, for a day's work. So you've got this hundred denarii would be a hundred days wages. Is it possible to pay that off? Absolutely. Just under three months of ordinary labor, less than a third of a year. And look at this man's response and seizing him. He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Notice the wording. Have patience with me and I will pay you. Similar wording, but now actually offers to do something that can be accomplished. But look at his response. Verse 30. He refused. And went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Okay, third, kind of third scene in this story, verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, as so they should be, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Who's their master? The king, who had forgiven this guy. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. By the way, in, in parables and in some stories, Jesus never really makes application. But in this one, he does. So I want you to get this. Look at verse thirty three, because this is the point of the story. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? The king doesn't just speak of canceling debt. He speaks of what? Showing mercy. Verse 34. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. It's actually the word torturers or tormentors. A word found only here in the New Testament. If you disregard grace, then expect strict and exacting judgment. By the way, Jesus would say it this way, with what measure you use, it will be what? It'll be measured back to you. Verse 35, here again is the point of the story. So also, well, look at verse 34, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. By the way, that's a life sentence. That's a death sentence because he can't pay it. Verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Reconciliation takes two people. It takes two people to come back together. But even if one refuses or is obstinate or resists, you can still have a forgiving heart. Do you understand that? You can at least be with all people In a position to say, if they would come and ask forgiveness, I would forgive them. In my heart, I already have moved towards them. You may never see reconciliation in this life because it takes two people. But you can be the one in the spirit of forgiveness. Forgiving your brother from your heart. That's why Jesus' followers pray this often. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. It's a great evidence that you're truly born again, having a forgiving heart towards people who don't even deserve it. Now, silently, let me ask you this question, and I had to ask myself this this week. Is there anyone right now that you would refuse to forgive if they came to you and asked forgiveness? One person clearly came to my mind this last week. And no, they've never lived in Colorado. Let me just kind of eliminate all those possibilities in your mind. But it was a real person who created real hurt. And I had to ask, am I willing in my heart to forgive that individual? If that individual came and humbly was willing to ask forgiveness and in this situation... Accept the penalty for his crimes. And I could. By God's grace, I could. Can you? How often should you forgive your brother? I'm not going to forgive him if they can guarantee they're never going to hurt me again. See, that's not forgiveness. You can't get that guarantee. How often? Jesus will tell you Seventy times seven. I mean, it can, it can be compared like this. By the way, in the story, who, who is the king? God. Who's the one that was forgiven? A life sentence. You. Who's the one that goes and he chokes his fellow brother because they owe him something that can be paid back? That's us again. When we refuse to forgive. And Jesus saw no incongruity. It's amazing Of you failed to show mercy, so you are then tormented. Jesus found no contradiction in God's character about that. Have you received forgiveness? Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Scripture says in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Scripture says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you received forgiveness? Listen to what God does to the person who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus Christ. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is what God says. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. We are great at remembering sins. God, the All Knowing, chooses to forget. He says this as far as the East is from the West, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Have you received forgiveness of your sins? There is no better way to end 2017 and enter 2018 than to be reconciled with God because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Final question before we respond through singing. Have you forgiven those that have trespassed against you? Are you at least willing? This doesn't mean you go and make 12 phone calls this afternoon and apologize for you know, subjective hurts you think you might have caused some. These are objective hurts. They're clear. They're crisp. Are you at least willing to ask forgiveness, because that is the greatest evidence, by the way, that you have received mercy from God, is that you give mercy to others. Forgiveness granted, showing mercy, responding to those in your debt with pure grace, reconciliation with others, there is no better way to end 2017 and enter 2018. Let's pray.